This is Mark Ronson with his incredible new album, Late Night Feelings. Featuring the hit singles, Late Night Feelings and Nothing Breaks Like a Heart. Mark Ronson, Late Night Feelings, out Friday. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me is... Jeff Kanata. And Devinder's not here today. He's uh, in Computex covering that event. Uh, so Taiwan. Today, yeah, Taiwan. My, my old stomping grounds. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately today we have someone pinch hitting on the Slash Filmcast, uh, Brad Omen, known as Ethan Anderton on SlashFilm.com. Brad, welcome to the Slash Filmcast. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Good to be back. Thanks for uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing here on the podcast today. We're going to start off with some what we've been watching. We've been watching a few things we want to tell you about. And then we're going to move on um, straight into our review today of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. If we have time, we'll do an after dark, but we'll see. We'll see how long this review goes. Jeff, you're feeling a little under the weather, are you not? So, Yeah, I'm a little cold. But hopefully, hopefully we can... Uh... You know, have a little after action. We'll power through. We'll power through as best we can. Um, Before uh, we get to anything else, I want to mention you can find all episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. And I want to thank everyone who came out to this uh, Stephen Tobolowsky live show that we did this last uh, weekend. I was in Los Angeles at the White Fire Theater in Shomer Oaks, California, uh, filming a story called The Afflictions of Love that Stephen Tobolowsky told. It was and my it was uh, so, I was so bummed, Dave. You were in my hood and I was not. I yeah. was uh, I was in Portland. You uh, were in my hood basically. That's Port- right. Portland I was is like a couple hours Northwest. away from uh, from Seattle. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you had a great time in Portland though. Uh, I did, so but good. I was sad to have missed that event. It sounds like it went off splendidly. It went off really well. Stephen did a great job. Uh, and I want to thank also both the White Fire Theater uh, for help letting us put on the show, and also Valentina V, who is a uh, longtime listener of both this show and the Tobolowski Files, who really stepped up and produced uh, that show for uh, for us. She did an amazing job, and uh, you can find her on Twitter. Uh, she does a lot of really, she makes a lot of really cool stuff. So uh, I would definitely recommend you check out Valentina, uh, Valentina V's work. Now. Uh, I, I did also want to say that we, you know, we filmed this thing so that we could hopefully release it publicly. You know, it's very difficult to find Stephen's stories on video uh, online. You know, that that's not behind a paywall. So the objective is we're going to get it on YouTube and Vimeo hopefully in the next few weeks. So look forward to that. I'll mention that again when it when it comes up. Uh, but I got to tell you guys a story of what happened this week. Uh, you, you know, a lot of people showed up. About 55, 60 people showed up, um, and that was super great. People lined up outside the Wi-Fi Theater like an hour before the show began, and it's just awesome to see so many fans of the Tobolowsky Files and listeners of Slash Filmcast there live and in the flesh. Um, so thanks for coming, and uh, we have three cameras, uh, four four cameras shooting Stephen on stage, and uh, we're ready to go. You know, 2 p.m. rolls around. We have to start basically on time. 
And so I get up on there on stage. I make a few announcements. I tell them what we're going to be doing that day. Uh, and I introduce Stephen. And literally seconds after I introduce Stephen and like motion for him to come onto the stage, uh, Stephen had positioned a stool with a glass of water near the microphone that I was using. And I bumped into that stool, knocked over the glass, water went all over the ground on the stage. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. And of course and of course we're filming we're filming this event, right? So uh the continuity like we couldn't just leave the water there because it was incredibly <laughs> noticeable. Ladies know? and gentlemen, Steven Tobolowski. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Never gesticulate, David. Never gesticulate. Uh, uh, agreed. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> lesson learned. And so there is, you know, I, I look over to Valentina, my producer and camera person, and I say, "Hey, uh, is this noticeable? Can you see the water on the stage?" She's like, "You can definitely see the water on the stage. <laughs> is this giant puddle on the stage noticeable?" So we immediately stopped the show. Literally before the show could even begin, we stopped it and then got a mop on stage and then mopped it up. Nice. But the thing is. Like when you mop it up, it doesn't just all vanish instantaneously, right? You mop no. it up to the point where it's going to dry off, right? But you can't just you can't it can't be completely one hundred percent dry. Got to so got to go towel after that for the first you know five minutes of the show. Yeah, we we should have gone towel, Jeff. But even then, it would have it would have basically taken you know five minutes to to. Uh, to towel it off to the point where it was completely dry. So rather than do that, we just did an initial mop, and then Stephen got on with the show. But the, for the first few minutes, there's, you, you can notice this huge wet spot on the stage drying. And, and then, of course, you know, later on, it's not, it's not there anymore. So the continuity is a nightmare. Uh, but what we did was we went back at the end of the show and redid the complete opening you know, two oh, minutes. Wow. Uh, with Stephen coming onto stage, you know, with the dry stage and everything like that, people stuck around. They were super good about it. Like the audience was super game to do whatever we needed to. So you thought um, that was less intrusive than spending two minutes with a towel? Well, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, we also wanted to get uh, different angles as well of Stephen's ah. entrance, so we you know, we had to redo things anyway to begin with. But uh, people were super awesome uh, in the audience, and I felt incredibly embarrassed that I had like we've been planning for weeks, you know, weeks to plan the show, and then right at the moment of victory, knocked over this massive glass yeah. of water. And you can never plan it. for your own bonehead moves. That's correct. You know, that's what we all learned. That's correct. So uh, you didn't I, want to have Stephen just add a line and be like storytelling. It's the most primal of the human instincts. Also, the soggiest. <laughs> I did not want to incorporate the water glass knocking over. Because I think my, my rationale is that if and when this is released online, it's going to be people's first time seeing Steven. And I don't want it to be that weird, you know, to start with. So, yeah. uh, in any case, really grateful for all the people that showed up and stuck around and helped us film things. Uh, that was awesome. And I hope that those of you who weren't there uh, will have a chance to check out the final video when we release it hopefully in the next month or two. Uh, it was a really interesting experiment trying to film it, you know, with as little money as possible, like just a few thousand dollars. And the idea is that if we can successfully do it and we like the product, that we can do a bunch of them. Because I think seeing Steven do it live in an audience is really the best way to watch his stories. Uh, the podcast is great, but, but I think the video with, with the live audience reaction is also very powerful. Yeah. Anyway. Um, sort of... Um a modern day um, 
uh, what's Spalding what's, Gray? Spalding Gray, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's sort of he's sort of no one has really ever filled those shoes, and maybe Stephen can kind of. Do his would, own do his own thing, obviously, but in that sort of tradition. I would like him to. I would like him to, and that's why you know we did this thing uh, in Los Angeles this weekend. So thanks to everyone for coming out. Thanks to the Wi-Fi Theater. Thanks to Valentina V. Uh, let's talk about what we've been watching this week. I want to just mention a couple things. Firstly, I had the honor of serving on the Seattle International Film Festival uh, jury for uh, animated shorts and documentary shorts, and I watched about. Uh, 16 to 17 hours worth of short films in the last couple weeks. Uh, and last night at the Seattle International Film Festival, we announced the winners of uh, those competitions. Uh, the winner of the uh, animated short was a movie called Pussy, which is about what you think it is. Uh, it's a very sex-positive animated film about uh, a woman's pussy. And I think it'll create some really interesting conversations. Uh, there's also a special mention for a movie called The Head Vanishes, uh, which is about uh, a woman dealing with uh, her mom who has uh, mental illness. In terms of documentary shorts, there was a movie that really destroyed me. It's called Refugee. Uh, I, so I watched some of these movies on a plane because I was flying back and forth from this uh, Stephen Tobolowsky event. And have you guys ever watched something on a plane where you're just – it moves you so much. You're just like crying on the plane and, uh, oh, yeah. it, it just, <laughs> you not feel, good. You, you, do you remember when you've done that? Or do you remember a specific instance, Jeff? Or? Gosh, I don't remember what I watched, but right. I do remember, what was it? I do remember crying heavily on a plane and feeling so, so self-conscious. Yeah, because you're sitting – you, there's people like an inch to your left, an inch to your right. Yeah. I'm watching this thing on my tablet. I'm like bawling uh, because of how powerful this movie is, Refugee. Uh, and yeah, that, I mean that's how, that's how good that, movie, that short film is, is. It was able to overcome any you know, social uh, qualms I had about just absolutely sobbing in tears and being a blubbering mess on a plane. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that everyone will get to see all of these movies one day. There's also a special mention um, for a movie called Waiting for Hasana, which is uh, about these uh, girls that got kidnapped by Boko Haram and how some of them basically are still kidnapped. They're, they're, there's, it's not like the, the conflict is over yet. Uh, and long after the hashtags are done, you know, these people are still living these situations in, in a really heartbreaking way. So... Uh, got to see a lot of awesome shorts. Uh, really honored that Seattle International Film Festival asked me to do this. And uh, I will mention those movies again uh, when you are able to watch them online. Right now, I think you can only see them in film festivals. But uh, the winners, again, were Pussy for Animated and also Refugee for Short Documentary. Uh, super powerful, and uh, I think they're very worthy winners in this case. All right. I think it's awesome to hear about that, Dave. But I think on behalf of the entire audience, I would like to say... Never use the P word again. Okay. Please. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> uh, Dr. Tanmay K. Ja in the chat room is talking about some of my favorite shows and movies, a.k.a. the final member, Scrotal Recall, and Pussy. Uh, all, all, sh- all things I've talked about on the Slash Filmcast. But uh, mm-hmm. in any case, mm-hmm. let's, talk also, again. <laughs> let's talk also about uh, this movie I saw called Small Crimes. 
Uh, do you guys have a chance to see uh, what's it called? Evan Katz's other movie, Cheap Thrills. Do you ever see Mm-mm. Cheap Thrills? No, uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, Cheap Thrills, I think that's on Netflix right now, uh, but that is an awesome movie. It's a short film. Uh, the premise of Cheap Thrills is basically this this guy and his friend, they meet up in a bar after, like, you, you ever been in a bar and you meet someone you haven't seen in 10 years, so you're not that great friends, but you kind of knew each other back in high school or college or whatever. And then they meet with, up this, with this rich couple who offers them money to do increasingly horrifying tasks, like... <laughs> Uh, punch that guy in the face. I'll give you three hundred dollars. You know, uh, I'll, I'll give you know two hundred dollars to the first guy who can get slapped by that waitress, and so on and so forth. And like the the bets increase and escalate in terms of their intensity um, throughout the night. So that's cheap thrills. It it is a propulsive movie that just there's so much energy in that film, like from beginning to end, because of this conceit of this guy, this couple paying these guys to do this crazy stuff. Uh, and so I really love that movie. Uh, Evan Katz is out with another film. It's called uh, Small Crimes. And it's out on Netflix. It's a Netflix original production or whatever. It's branded Netflix. And it stars Nikolai Coster Waldau from uh, Game of Thrones. He plays Jamie Lannister on Game of Thrones. Uh, but he plays the main character in Small Crimes. Uh, you've never seen him looking this unattractive before. Uh, <laughs> so. I, I thought you mean he's not a nine foot tall god. In this <laughs> That's correct. He he's basically a loser in this movie, a complete deadbeat, not someone you'd want to spend time around or have anyone you care about spend time around. Uh, he gets out of jail. He's an ex cop, but he was put in jail for some horrible things he did. He get the opening scene is him getting out of jail after six years and trying to rebuild his life, but stuff from the past just won't let go. Uh, this movie actually stars and I think was co written by Macon Blair who wrote and directed uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. He's also the star of Blue Ruin. Uh, and it is very similar to those films. Uh, oh, I think it, I would love it then. I think you'd like this. But it's, it's much more depressing. It, think of it like, um, it's like I Don't Feel at Home in This World, but without the humor. You know, Uh-oh. there's very little humor in this movie. Mm. Um, there's some humor, but there's so little humor. It's just very cynical, very depressing. Uh, there's the the performances though are fantastic. Uh, Nikolai Costa-Waldo is great in this movie, and Gary Cole playing a cop. Um, I, I I tweeted this out last night, but um, forget about the McConaughey's. We need to talk more about the Gary Coleessance and mm. the Robert Forster Assance guys. <laughs> You can't just assance everything. You can't Dave. assance everything. I know those those names do not lend themselves uh, themselves well to assancing. No. But uh, Robert Forster is in this movie too. Uh, he's also in the new Twin Peaks, uh, and we've seen a lot of Robert Forster lately. He's awesome. But he also is Gary awesome. Gary Cole. We haven't seen uh, him doing something like he does in this movie. So the performances are really wonderful. The movie is super depressing. It's kind of a slow burn thriller, uh, but. I, I liked it enough to recommend it to everyone, especially if you liked uh, Macon Blair's other movies. Uh, it's really not that similar to Evan Katz's other movie, uh, Cheap Thrills. But if you like those slow burn thrillers, if you like a, a smattering of ultraviolence in there, then I think there's enough worth recommending. I've seen a lot of reviews of this movie that are pretty negative. They talk about Evan Katz's sophomore slump. Uh, but I still think there's enough in Small Crimes to make it worth recommending. So that's Small this, Crimes. This is a a, a feature-length film, right? Not yeah. a small – a short – yeah. 90 minutes long. Uh, and yeah, it's just – the performances are great. The ultraviolence is pretty good. You know, and there's a lot of 
a characters, a lot of actors playing against type. They play against kind of the characters that you know them for. So, uh, anyway, I enjoyed it. It's Small Crimes. It's on Netflix right now. So, Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching this week? Well, before I get to that, I, I, you made me think of something when you were talking about uh, short films that you had seen. Um, as I mentioned, I traveled to Portland this week to visit some friends and just have a nice little Memorial Day vacation. And I don't know if you're aware of this. Maybe you are. Maybe I'm the last person to know. Did you guys know that there is a movie theater in the Portland airport? No, I did not that know that. shows short what? films. Oh, cool. I think I that like is there a be movie theaters and airports all the time. That's just a good idea in general. Well, but it's so brilliant that they show short films that you know you basically you would rarely have time to sit down and see a full length feature in a movie theater. But what a brilliant way to spend the half an hour that you need to wait for your flight. Just di- uh, duck into this theater and watch a couple of shorts. I unfortunately didn't have that kind of time. I was kind of pressed for time as I walked by it, but. My goodness, I would love that opportunity in every airport I go into to catch some short – because you know, it's so difficult. As you said, David, you know, you're, you're seeing these as a judge for the Seattle International Film Festival. But it's not, it's not easy to see short films generally speaking. It's, it's, you know, you, sometimes you can see them on streaming services. Sometimes you can see them online. But for the most part, these shorts that appear in film festivals – aren't viewable by most people and what a perfect way yeah when they're in festivals they're not viewable typically at some point you know because the tools are so easy now typically at some point shorts will be released online but it might be years later do you know what i mean i'm just thinking that what what a wonderful way to expose them to wider audiences and you know have you be able to make that kind of special experience at an airport i think that's just a really cool idea I agree completely. Uh, it looks like this is a relatively new thing. There's an article in March of 2017 I'm reading right now that is about the opening of this uh, this theater called the Hollywood Theater, right? Uh, which is a 17-seat micro-cinema located on Concourse C at the uh, PDX airport. Uh, but yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Pretty darn cool. I wish I had had the opportunity to duck inside and, and see it. I was traveling with my eight-month-old son and, and my wife, and so it, it just was not conducive to my particular Situation. Is but this the first flight with eight-month-old eight Jeff? This is the longest flight. He uh, Christmas. He uh, he went up. Uh, we did a quick uh, flight up to Northern California. So that was that was less than an hour. Uh, but this was the longest flight he's done. And boy, he he came through like a champ. He's a real traveler. Nice. Pretty, pretty happy about it. Yeah. Glad to hear. Yeah. There's there's babies that are very nice on planes and they barely make a noise. And there's babies that aren't super nice. So it sounds like you have one of the nicer ones. Yeah, there was a baby that was uh, losing its mind uh, on our flight, and my kid was like looking at me like, "What? What's going on over there?" <laughs> well, so, glad to fortunate. hear. Uh, yeah. Jeff, what else have you been watching this week? Well, um, I am a huge fan of Bloodline. I have talked about it on this show many times. I think Bloodline is woefully under-discussed. It is uh, one of my favorite shows on Netflix. Uh, Kyle Chandler, Sissy Spacek, Ben Mendelsohn. An amazing cast of really it's a it's a taut family drama, uh, and season three just debuted in the, full. The final it's, season, I believe, right? That's correct. Yeah. I, I think they had originally planned for more seasons, but um, the tax laws changed in Florida where this show is shot, and so they Netflix said eh, no more, and so they're luckily were able to write the season knowing it was the last. So um, uh, things are wrapping up. It is a show that. 
each episode is titled, you know, part whatever. So like, you know, the first episode of season three is part 24. It, it really is that. It really is one story told over multiple parts. There is, you know, there is no episodic content. This is one story. Uh, I am four episodes into season three right now. It's one of those it, it, unbelievably taut and tense and I mean I have a hard time breathing during it. It is so, so intense and so good I cannot imagine where the show is going to wrap up. Uh, I will obviously report back when I complete it. But if you are not watching Bloodline, uh, in on, in one sense you need to. In another sense, I kind of understand because Dave, I'm having a hard time enjoying dark shows again. Yeah, it's a hard, I saw, it's I saw hard. you tweeting about this, yeah. I was watching Bloodline. It is so dark. It is so grim. The people make hard choices. The, the Our heroes are morally gray to the point of almost like, I don't think we should even root for these people. They've done horrible things. I love shows like that. My favorite show of all time is The Shield. I, you know, I love Sopranos. I, all these Breaking Bad, all these shows where – the main character does despicable things. I'm having a hard time enjoying them. And today, as we record this, House of Cards, new season is out. My wife and I love that show. I just, with the way the world is now, it's much more difficult for me to enjoy these dark shows. As much as I'm loving Bloodline, and I really think that it is a high watermark for writing and performance and it's ringing me through these incredibly interesting machinations. I mean, the show could be called Lies the Show because it's all about <laughs> lies and how they how they have impact on people and what ha- everyone in the show is lying about something. But I like there's too many too much lies in the real world for me now and there's too much darkness and moral gray and it's just it it's much more difficult for me to enjoy these shows, David. Yeah, I mean, I think that's completely reasonable. Uh, and I mean, look, I, I don't assume everyone who listens to this show is uh, a liberal or a progressive person, although at this point probably they are because we've scared off all the other people. But <laughs> imagine if you are, uh, if you're someone like Jeff who who is a person like that. I think that for a lot of liberals and, and progressive people, uh, the daily news has become like a waking nightmare. You know, every, every time you see something on, like the CNN news alert, uh, I have it on my phone. I don't know why I don't turn it off, but yeah. I feel like I just need to know, you know, what's happening. Yeah. And every time you get a news alert, you're just like, I don't know what new travesties this day will bring because it's it's always something. In a way that um, you know, I've uh, I, I've lived through a couple of administrations of George W. Bush years were uh, fairly challenging. If you're a, a liberal progressive, but like it was never the the, um, the scandals only came you know once every three to six months back then. Yeah, <laughs> um, now they seem to be coming like on a weekly basis. So, oh, yeah, uh, and and you know, I I'm certainly come from a particular point of view, but I have a hard time believing that that darkness is only relegated to the liberals and progressives. I, I just don't understand how any human being can't feel that <laughs> it's a dark time. It's a dark, uh, dark yeah. time. I mean, you know, uh, 39% of people still really support our president. So it's, uh, I, I, I can't, I don't want to assume, assuming that everyone thinks the same way we do is what got us into this situation, Jeff. So, 
I, I think. Yeah, some- but from their perspective, it's dark because all of the media outlets are liars. <laughs> Perhaps. But I, I understand. I think that definitely the political reality we're in um, has changed what we are looking for in movies. You know, it's changed what we find amusing. It's changed what we find resonant with our reality. As I've I, mentioned, as we mentioned on a previous After Dark, you know, I'm watching I'm watching Veep every week, and it just does not compare right. with what we see in real life. It's My just, wife and I love House of Cards, and we're excited for the new season. I just don't understand how we could possibly enjoy it at this point. But also, and I'm very interested to see what they do this season. Also, when I was um, right out of college, I dated a girl um, for a long time and got to know her parents well, and. They were people who only went to nice movies. They only went to movies that had happy endings, that were positive, that they're like, I don't want to see anything that doesn't make me feel nice coming out of the theater. And I had so little respect for that. (laughs) I just thought that is – what a close-minded, awful way to go through your – not be challenged, not have to think about anything. There are so so many of my favorite films are – dark and gritty and interesting and and challenge my assumptions about the world and make me go through something and man I don't respect you at all for just wanting a, a happy time and I'm just like can we just watch master of none or something <laughs> funny tonight honey I just don't I can't I can't put myself through it no I, I actually I've kind of felt the same way and not in the sense, I haven't sort of avoiding uh necessarily like darker more dramatic fare but I find myself less inclined to go to the movie theater than I was in years previous. If I have heard a movie is not that great or if it sounds like it's just not going to be, you know, worth my time in general. Cause like, I, I don't want to go to the theater and be disappointed. And so like, uh, I got, like I didn't check, I didn't go see the circle under normal circumstances. I probably would have, but I heard that it was just so dissatisfying and I didn't want to go to the theater leave and be, you know, upset about spending my time there. And, and normally I don't really care about that kind of thing because I like to experience a movie for myself, even if it is bad. I have a movie pass, so I don't, uh, you know, the after a certain time, the ticket is essentially free for me. So it's, it's not like it's a waste of money for me. Um, so, but lately I've taken solace in just watching things that I know are going to satisfy me. And it's usually, you know, old favorites, stuff that I know that I'll love, you know, that, that, I don't, you know, dare be disappointed or upset when it doesn't turn out to be what I as good as I hope it will be. Yeah, yeah. that's that's also a decent approach. I skipped my Baywatch screening last week. That was so did I. Yeah, so because did I. I was like, I don't think I'm going to enjoy this, and of course, it didn't do very well. You know, let's let's just take a box office break here for a moment and say, I mean, Baywatch uh, is is set to be a pretty significant disaster. Uh, came in around twenty five million dollars over the course of five days this Memorial Day weekend. That's that's Far under what they were thinking for a movie that they spent seventy million dollars on, um, but also uh, Paramount guys, rough year, rough year. Let me list you a few movies that Paramount's had: Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, Monster Trucks, Rings, and Ghost in the Shell. Is in addition Yikes. to Par- Baywatch. That's just in twenty seventeen too. Let's not even talk about twenty sixteen. Uh, so Paramount's having a rough go of it, uh, but you know who also is having a rough go of it? Jeff's top 10 summer movie wager list. Well, I, mean, I want to say something real quick. <laughs> I want to say something real quick because uh, this is the last episode you'll hear before, before we Wonder have, Woman. Yep. Before we have seen Wonder Woman, before Wonder Woman comes out. And I 
really, really regret not putting Wonder Woman on my list proper. It's a dark horse for me. But more than just wanting to perform well in the summer movie wager, I really regret not kind of throwing my support in in a way behind the movie or having some sort of cynical outlook that politically it might – might harm the movie. I'm so happy to hear that people are loving it. I'm I'm so excited to see it. And all of the sort of news we heard this week about, you know, men being upset about the girl only screenings, all that stuff. I really regret buying into that narrative. And I really wish I had, you know, I heard it wasn't tracking well. And I was like, Oh, maybe I, I won't put it on my list. I wanted to just blow the doors off and I wanted to be great as great as everybody's saying. I'm excited to see it and I wish I had kind of put my money where my mouth was and and you know put it on my list. I I really regret that. All right. Well, thanks thanks for saying that, Jeff. Uh I have extracted my pound of flesh from you. Uh yes. I was I was hoping you'd double down and just like no. you know, dig it. I wanted but, to do so well. I wanted yeah. to be awesome. I I wanted to just crush and I wanted I you know I was looking at it in the in the through the prism of the Ghostbusters reboot and I just I I thought it was going to underperform. I don't want it to. I want it to just be amazing and awesome and be the biggest movie this summer and and I want to be wrong. Awesome. So. Awesome. Um well I it currently has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. So excited, uh, man. Yeah, and so I I think it has a lot of uh momentum heading into this weekend. We'll see how it does. I I, I don't know. I have a really good feeling about this one. It's also widely regarded as the best uh DC comics movie since, you know, Chris Nolan's Batman movies. Yeah, not difficult to achieve that <laughs> one. Not difficult to achieve, but yeah, that's so encouraging. And just seeing people get upset about various aspects of it is going to be pretty fascinating and dispiriting to behold as time goes on. Um, both, like you said, the women-only screenings. And we, we have not seen the end of this. We have not seen the end of people finding ways to complain about people's coverage or people's treatment of Wonder Woman because, you know, what is it going to say when the only – like there's people out there who are die-hard die DC Comics – uh, fans and who anytime we do a negative review of Suicide Squad or whatever, uh, they are the ones that do the attacking. And uh, when the first movie that people actually like is the one that has a female uh, protagonist, I just feel like we are heading towards some challenging times up ahead when it comes to online debate. But Indeed. hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. Uh, I'm looking By forward way, to seeing uh, how Wonder Woman performs though. Yep. I don't want to uh, boast per se, but I would like to point out that uh, as far as the friends of Slash Room leaderboard is concerned, I am currently at the top. <laughs> well, congratulations, uh, Brad. I think, you know, as I tweeted out recently, the night is always darkest before the dawn. Uh, <laughs> and when it comes to my when it comes to my list. And also what's what's awesome, you know, Jeff, you know that I hate the summer movie wager rules. I think they're completely ludicrous and don't actually gauge skill of predicting things. But what is amazing about the summer movie wager it's rules? Never the goal. Never the goal. What, go is, ahead. what is amazing about the rules is that it allows for a people to mess up royally on some really important choices and still win. And right. B for like crazy reversals to happen late in the game, right? So right. Uh, someone can be, right, like right now, Brad can be first. In two weeks, he could be last. 
In fact, right. I predict this. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> I would like to. I would like to point out that your criticism of the rules basically proves that your winning back-to-back years has no relevance to your skill level. <laughs> has no validity whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You basically just, by your own admission, proved that you it's complete fluke and could have happened to anybody. Uh, I mean, I. I'm not necessarily opposed. If you're willing to grant me that the rules are nonsense, then I'm not necessarily opposed to what you just said. So they're the best kind of nonsense, though. <laughs> the nonsense, the kind of nonsense that creates drama. Uh, sure, sure. I mean, I think like what would be, in my opinion, what would be a more fair or uh, I guess useful uh, way of doing this would be for you to actually predict the dollar amounts. You know what I mean? Like. That, I think, would right. actually show some level of skill as opposed to just the, the rankings. But in any case, if you want to follow along with which movies we predicted will win uh, at the box office this summer, go to thesummermoviewager.com. You'll see our choices. You'll see uh, uh, Brad's choices on the Friends of Slash Film Leaderboard. Uh, and yeah, uh, uh, Brad is currently killing it right now. 25 points. Number one. Um, so, yeah. Well if, the, if, the, if the Summer Movie Wager ended May 30th, he would be the winner. Uh, I think also the, uh, the the global leaderboard, Terra Tart, user Terra Tart, and Dumbbird are, are bringing up the lead in terms of all the 2,600 players who are, are on the global leaderboard uh, with 41 points compared to Brad's uh, 25 points. So, But, you know, guys, the summer is not over yet. And so far... Summer I'm, hasn't even started. I'm feeling... <laughs> The summer is one week old. So far, I'm feeling pretty good about my choices. I'm still regretting the Guardians of the Galaxy Despicable Me thing, but other than that, feeling pretty good, guys. Feeling pretty good. All right, Brad Omen, what have you been watching this week? Uh, so uh, last, just this past week, I saw the indie movie Five Twenty Five Seventy Seven. Um, some of the Slash Film readers might have heard about it because we, we posted about it uh, some back at the beginning of May because the trailer had come out um, finally. This is a movie that played the Hamptons International Film Festival back in October 2008, and it was just known as 77. And it's gone through various recuts, and they've, they've added footage and all this thing over the years. And it's, it's become not like – I don't want to say this you know, sort of mythical movie, but a lot of Star Wars fans have heard of it and have wanted to see it for a long time. And since this year is the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, uh, they figured it was the perfect time to finally release it. And so um, they had a premiere. The filmmaker, Patrick Reed Johnson, is from the Chicago area, which is around where I live. And they had the uh, world premiere for it, aside from the festival premiere, of the, the final cut that was actually being released in theaters and on VOD on May 22nd. So I went up to uh, Waukegan, Illinois, to check it out at the Genesee Theater up there. And I, I was interested in seeing it. It looked like it was going to be a little bit amateurish, um, definitely a true indie. But John Francis Daly is in it as the lead. He basically plays a um, Patrick Reed Johnson, the filmmaker himself, uh, and it's the story of how, like one or that consolidated at the time span of a few years into basically what is one year leading up to the release of Star Wars on five twenty five seventy seven. And it's just this coming-of-age story of how he became inspired by films like 2001 A Space Odyssey when he was a kid and wanted to become a filmmaker. And he actually ended up go, um, going out to Hollywood and you know meeting with some people out there. And he met Steven Spielberg and he saw footage um, from Star Wars and it blew his mind and uh, inspired him even more to become a filmmaker while his friends back in his hometown in you know 
Northeastern Illinois didn't really get it, understand him. And it's a charming movie, but it is not very well executed. It's um, definitely super low budget, which has some char- adds some of that charm to it. John Francis Daly is really what makes it work the best, but it feels like it's glued together in a very weak way. There's there's a, an attempt to create a bookend and a thread that ties everything together. But it's just – it doesn't quite work as a cohesive narrative. I would love to have seen this kind of story told with a filmmaker who actually had some more money, maybe had a little bit you know, more time to perfect it and really pour, pour more of himself into it. Because it's a passion project, but it's, uh, it's clear that he's not quite at the level of a, a filmmaker who knows how to like, tell that kind of story and really make it connect with, with audiences. Gotcha. Uh, well, that's a bummer, Brad. This movie that people had never heard of until you mentioned it just now, they probably shouldn't go see it, right? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't. It's it's only playing in like I want to. I think they said the 32 theaters, and what was cool about that was because when Star Wars originally came out in theaters in '77, it also only released in 32 theaters, which was well, you know just a cool little tidbit. Um, I think it's also available on VOD from Filmio, I believe, is the company. And if it's if it's cheap on VOD, I would say maybe just give it a shot to check it out because it's it, it is interesting. Let me ask to you see this. Is there anything? Like yeah, yeah. Is there anything in the story about this guy getting inspired by Star Wars that like resonated with you personally, even if the movie's not that good? Like, yeah, no, abs- and that's that, that's the thing is there there are parts in it where I'm like, man, this, there there are some really touching, like inspiring moments in here that if this were part of a an overall better movie, I would I would really fall in love with this movie. Like if this was a movie, it's kind of like. It's it's a filmmaker version of Almost Famous in a way. Hmm. Um, and I would love to have seen a director like Cameron Crowe do something with this kind of movie because that, that's what it feels like. It, but it just doesn't have the same impact. Um, there, there's like there's a couple monologues that John Francis Daly has that just it really hit home and like where he says things like that. I feel the way about film that his character does, that Patrick Reed Johnson does. And I just wish it resonated more because there's definitely something there's, – there's nuggets of greatness there, but it's just lost among kind of a, a messy amateur production. Gotcha. All right. Uh, well, the movie is 525.77. I had a really difficult time Googling it. But if you want to find it or details about it, it's the numeral 5-25-77. Uh, and it's directed by Patrick Reed Johnson. Uh, and it sounds like there are some good elements about it, but uh, overall it doesn't quite hang together. But I, I really like movies like that, you know, where – not movies that don't hang together, but movies that are you know, really small productions about how someone was inspired by this one thing, you know? Um, I, and, and they try to capture the magic of, of inspiration. Um, so anyway, 525.77, that's the movie. Uh, let's – Move on. Let's get to our review, guys, of Pirates. Before we do that, though, we want to thank all the people that donated to the Slash Filmcast this week. Thanks to Robin Chung, Tia Maria Smith, William Moore from Australia, Dylan from Gilbert, Arizona, Brent Zeppenfield, Laurie Guinness, James R. from Suisun City, California, David H. from Fredericksburg, Virginia. Thanks so much for your contributions. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks also to new subscribers Yannick Poirel, Andre Goncharov, Luke Delacosta for their contributions to the rate of $2 per month. If you want to support the Slash Filmcast and defray the cost of seeing movies putting on the show, go to SlashFilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page, or just go to PayPal.me slash, and then the word Filmcast. PayPal.me slash Filmcast. I also want to read this email we got from a longtime listener named Peter Vels. Peter writes in, 
Just got back from my second viewing of Alien Covenant, this time with my mom, big fan of the podcast. We listened to your review of Alien Covenant on the way back, and she wanted to make sure I donated on her behalf. And specifically, she wanted me to mention how much Jeff is wrong, generally mm. speaking and also specifically about Alien Covenant. That is all. On behalf of my mother, Aura Wynn Veltz of Centerville, Virginia, who thinks Jeff is often wrong about things while also loving his input, thanks for the podcast. So uh, I'm wrong generally and specifically. Generally and specifically, yeah. That being said, uh, Aura Wynn Veltz did give us a pretty massive donation this week. So, Well, uh, I would say thank you, but I am often wrong. <laughs> uh, no, that is wonderful. Thank you for the very generous donation. And uh, if, if anybody else wants to donate because I'm so wrong, uh, we will gladly accept that. Definitely, definitely. All right. But I love how there's no <laughs> there's no specification as to yeah, like what you're wrong about. What I'm wrong you know, about. Just like, I'm just yeah. generally and specifically wrong. Yeah. Yeah, go back and re-listen to the Alien Covenant review and just like at any time Jeff speaks, he's wrong. Like just assume that and then I think you'll, you'll have a good perspective going in to that review. I said a lot of positive things about Alien Covenant. Yeah, I mean that's probably what was wrong, Jeff. Well, they said that they loved it. They saw it a second time. Yeah, well, maybe you were wrong in the you you were wrong about which things were good, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably what happened. All right, anyway. Uh, let's move on to our review of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Pirates had infected the seas for generations. So I vowed to eliminate them all. And then, there was this boy. Jack Sparrow. He took everything from me and filled me with rage. That was from the trailer of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, newest film in the Pirates franchise. Guys, this is the fifth Pirates movie. Because it takes five movies... To tell the story of a theme park ride. Yes. Uh, this one was uh, not directed by any of the directors of previous ones. It was directed by Joachim Ronning and Espen Sandberg. Did you guys see their previous movie, the Contiki movie? I've, mm-hmm. heard, I've heard great things about Contiki, which came out in 2012. Uh, and it, my understanding is it kind of helped get them this this role, uh, this uh, I've, director. I've not seen it either. Yeah. Uh, but the movie's Contiki is from 2012. Apparently, it's quite good. Uh, but now they were, you know tapped to direct uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, uh, which is about, according to IMDb, Captain Jack Sparrow searching for the trident of Poseidon. Uh, This movie stars Johnny Depp as Captain Jack Sparrow and Javier Bardem as Captain Salazar, also Jeffrey Rush as Captain Hector Barbosa, and Brenton Thwaites as Henry Turner, as well as Kaya Scodelario? Scodelario? From uh, starring as Karina Smith in this movie, so uh, Brad Omen, uh, I'm not sure whether or not you're a fan of the Pirates franchise, but maybe talk a little bit about that and whether you're even looking forward to this movie, as well as what you thought of it. Yeah, my entertainment from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise has decreased exponentially with each film since the first one. Um, I think like most people back in 2003, I was quite pleasantly surprised by how good Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl was. 
Um, it was the first time we were introduced to Johnny Depp's character, Jack Sparrow, uh, who's an entertaining new hero who was perpetually drunk. And while he, you know, bumbled a lot and made mistakes, he always seemed to have some kind of grand plan or scheme and things worked in his favor. Uh, Jeffrey Rush was a great villain as Captain Barbosa, And it, it was just a pleasant adventure movie that really reinvigorated uh you know, a genre of the pirate movies that hadn't really had a good movie in a long time. Who would have thought that, you know, a pirate movie could be exciting again after so many years? Spoken like someone who's never seen Cutthroat Island, Brad. <laughs> oh, no, I've seen Cutthroat I'm, Island. I'm just, and I'm Master and Commander. <laughs> Master and Commander. <laughs> I guess that's not really pirates, but... Yeah, not really. But yeah, so I, I love Curse of Black Pearl. Dead Man's Chest I enjoyed mostly because of Bill, Bill Nye as uh, David Jones. But it started to have diminishing returns. At World's End was pretty bad, and On Stranger Tides, On Stranger Tides, was just I, I, I had no idea what was going on. I, I couldn't even tell you today what happened in that story. I just remember leaving the theater and <laughs> being woefully disappointed. It is a complete. Um, that, yeah, On Stranger Tides is a complete nothing burger of a movie. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I, I remember so little. Uh, I I know in my head, like intellectually, that Penelope Cruz is in that movie. I don't remember anything about her, nor do I remember Ian McShane's performance as Blackbeard. Yeah, I actually forgot both of those people were in it until I recently looked up a little bit of information about On Stranger Tides. And I was like, oh, okay. I I remember nothing about this movie. (laughs) I'm impressed that Uh, you were able to just name the subtitles of all the movies in order. (laughs) If someone said you had to name all the Pirates movies subtitles in order – and then I will take care of all of your finances for the rest of your life. I'd be like, well, I guess I got to keep working. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's kind of where I was at on the Pirates franchise. This one, I was basically I, I wasn't disinterested, but I I mostly just didn't care. I wasn't excited. Um, I had a little bit more interest once I heard out of CinemaCon that it was better than the previous sequels, which wouldn't take much to do anyway. But I was hopeful that maybe, yeah, sure, we can start anew and get something fresh. Um, but I found myself completely bored, extremely disappointed, and I just feel like this the franchise has just taken a turn from being something new and exciting to being stale. And that includes Jack Sparrow as a character. I, I think they've even lost what made Jack Sparrow great to begin with because now he's just a complete fool uh, who doesn't even fall into – like luck by accident and it didn't even seem to have a general plan and i just i find myself wondering like why they're keeping this going especially and i'm sure we'll talk about this where they're not even tapping into the mythology in a meaningful way uh where they're forgetting all these different story points and details that came with the previous sequels and i just there are very there are some little action set pieces that i was like oh that's that's an interesting approach to you know the 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 scene with the guillotine was that was a fun scene but there's only parts of it that worked for me and i just i i don't understand how the disney is still spending millions of dollars on this franchise because it is stale yeah, absolute stale uh, apparently this is one of the more expensive ones um over 200 million dollars uh, but uh, and and also we should say that it's doing very poorly in the United States. It made I think thirty million dollars less in opening weekend than On Stranger Tides. Um, to be fair, On Stranger Tides made a billion dollars worldwide, so still a big success. But um, certainly in the U.S., it's losing its luster. They're going to have to rely on overseas for this to be a really uh, big success for them uh, in terms of box office. Jeff Kanata, walk us through your feelings on pirates. 
Oh, uh, the Pirates movies are among the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, even, even the I, first one? I guess I have a hard time differentiating them, to be honest with you. I guess I enjoyed the first one, but the every sequel has been I, I, I utter loathe them. I that they are they are unbelievably bad movies, uh, and I have. Um, I, I remember reviewing them on the Totally Rad show and just going off and railing on the nonsensical stupidity that resides within. I guess I like the first one okay. I, I guess – I don't even remember to be honest with you. I don't remember I, – I don't remember liking a Pirates movie, which is how bad the sequels have been. Like that – they have tarnished the entire <laughs> concept for me. I actually had a good time with this movie. I actually had a pretty good time with this movie. And maybe my expectations were so low, but Brad's not wrong. Uh, it is incredibly stale. Uh, Johnny Depp's shtick, the, the Jack Sparrow shtick, is really done. It's over. It's, it is completely uninteresting at this point. There's nothing new to be gained from it. His character is completely uninteresting. He's the least novel part of this movie uh but if you look at this movie like a live action cartoon which is basically what it is and it's as a, as a collection of gags like you would find in a roadrunner cartoon the gags are actually really good the the thing that holds them together is is dumb this movie is what two and a half hours long and should be 90 minutes there is no need for this movie to be as bloated and and long as it is. And that's because it, it thinks we care about all of this. There's so much stuff happening. There's so many people and things that they think we care about. We do not. There's nothing in, in this movie that matters. It is a collection of gags. But the gags are really good and they're really well executed. Uh, Brad named one of them. If we're doing a uh, spoiler section, I can name others. But every gag in this movie I really thought was pretty cool. And they managed to show things that I don't think I've seen before uh, ever and, and in completely novel ways. And that's – it was I was kind of entertained by these big bombastic things. Meanwhile, every scene where we find out how someone's related to someone or how the the curse – the machinations of how curses work and the backstory oh, of Jack they, they... I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotted just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Explained how curses work and stuff. In I movie? guess I missed, I missed that part. I mean, I, the fact I, that curses work. Maybe. I missed the part where anything is explained in this movie. But yeah, well, they certainly spend time talking about it. <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many moving parts in this mythos for no reason. There's no. There's like twelve extra characters in this movie that didn't need to be there. It, it is completely bloated and. Uh, Unnecessary, but yeah. I still 
had way more fun with this one than I've had in a Pirates movie in a decade. And that's saying something, I guess. I mean, I think, I think there is some fun to be had with pure visual silliness. And this movie kind of goes there all the way. And while there was some of that in previous episodes of this series, I don't think they came off with as much panache and weren't, weren't embracing the just sort of wily coyote silliness of it all uh, as much. Uh, I think this movie embraces that in a way that I found palatable and more fun. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, what this movie did right is it tried to bring us back to the magic of the first film, you know, to mixed success. Uh, You have this young, budding romance between Will Turner's child and this other woman, Karina, uh, of indeterminate origin. And they're really trying to capture the will they or won't they of the original Curse of the Black Pearl movie. Um, with Jack Sparrow theoretically relegated to being a side character, which is where I think he operates best. But I don't know. He he kind of is positioned as the main character in this movie, and that's just not super interesting. He's more interesting when he's the spice in the stew and not the stew itself. And like you said, he's he's a collection of ticks and an outfit right now, right? That's all he is. Um, there's not much interesting going on in that character. You don't ponder the inner life of Jack Sparrow. You don't wonder how he's going to change or what his goals are or how his goals will change. Any like anything like that. Like it's there's just nothing there. And, and they weirdly like try to have it both ways where he's the most important pirate that ever lived and was has been present at every important thing that's ever happened in that world, but also is this kind of train wreck of a guy who just kind of bumbles his way through things. It it doesn't play. It doesn't yeah. play. That being said, I agree that I did not hate this movie as much as the Pirates sequels, uh, the other Pirates sequels, you know? I probably enjoyed this movie more than 2, 3, and 4, but that's a very low bar to hit. I thought that 2, 3, and 4 at least, or 2 and 3 at least had this, if, if, if you watch, uh, you know, Gore Verbinski's work, whatever you will say about it, it is visually interesting. You know, he'll put the camera in places and show you uh, shots and angles that you just wouldn't get with any other filmmaker. And I think we saw that when you when you compare the, the visual style of On Stranger Tides with uh, either any of the first three films, it is left wanting. And uh, so those movies at least had Gore Verbinski's visual style. On Stranger Tides, I just think, was complete waste. But what does this movie have? It has this kind of reboot of this young romance. Uh, and it also in my opinion, has, as you said, Jeff, some really fun gags, some really fun set pieces. Um, I, I don't think this movie is as good as the first one, which I, I still think holds up today and is quite fun. Um, but it's not as terrible as the other ones. It's it's still pretty terrible, though. I think the plot is complete nonsense. And like you said, there's soap opera stuff about who's related to who, and that's just laughably bad. It It just is... Not only does it make any sense in terms of uh, timeline, but just it adds nothing to the movie. Um, it, it goes against everything we know about characters that have been established for quite some time. It just, I, I felt like my intelligence was being insulted. Uh, not to mention the main MacGuffin of the, or, or there's like a couple of MacGuffins. There's like a compass and the, the Poseidon's trident. The MacGuffins are explained incredibly poorly. 
and uh, it, it feels like they're just making up rules for these things as they go along. Uh, it, it all just That's feels because they are. Dave. Yeah, it, it all just feels very disrespectful to audience intelligence in a way that uh, makes it difficult for me to really endorse this movie. But I would lie, I would be lying if I said I had no fun at this movie. Right? I, I did have some fun. There's still some nice moments. Um, visually, it looks pretty good. Not as good as Gore Verbinski's movies, but not terrible. I'd give it probably a C minus. This is one of those movies where the more I think about it, the less I like it. You know, maybe when I walked into the theater, I uh, walked out of the theater, it was like a C plus B minus. Now it's like a C minus. I'm just really, really not loving this franchise anymore. And I think you're, you guys are right. It's run its course. I'll add one one last thing that that the visual effects in this movie are are so good. <laughs> they are so good. I couldn't help but think that writing a script for this film while, you know, clearly a mess, this film script is a mess, but it must be such a fun enterprise to just throw out the most over the top, insane ideas, those visually spectacular things you could possibly imagine. And then those things are executed. There is no limit to what is presented in, in these movies. And, we're at the point now with visual effects where, I mean, your imagination is your only limit, right? It is, it is truly everything that you see in this film is on a scale and on a, a level of just visual um, inventiveness that it blows my mind. It really, it really is quite something. I will agree with that, except there was one visual effect that I was not impressed by, and it was, and this isn't a spoiler because it's in the trailer. Uh, it is the de aging of Johnny Depp as young Jack Sparrow. For all of the good job that Disney has done with Marvel Studios in de aging characters like actors like Robert Downey Jr., Michael Douglas, and and Kurt Russell most recently, uh, whatever they did to make Johnny Depp look young in this movie does not work because it looked. Looks like they pasted his eyes onto a completely different person's body. It was extremely distracting for me, and I was just flabbergasted by how poor it actually looked in the I, final. I actually movie. thought it worked okay until he started speaking. And then it felt yeah. like I was watching a 3D animation that approximated Johnny Depp as opposed to actually young Johnny mm. Depp. Like if someone tried to create Johnny Depp in Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, Grand Theft Auto 4 on the Xbox 360, maybe, you know, yeah, like, you guys. Not, not the new one, you know. I think you're overstating it. I, 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 I don't know. Did you guys see it in 3D? I saw it in 3D. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. I also we're, saw it. We're at... overstating how good it was, Jeff. You mean you think it was actually way worse than that, or? No, I think, <laughs> I think it was actually much more effective than you're saying. But uh, I, it's, it's amazing that you could look at a, an actor young and even believe it is the same person. I, I, yeah, I, I thought it worked. I, I didn't, I wasn't distracted by it. Um, so uh, Michael Doolin in the chat says Depp was genuinely great in the first film, but he also had the benefit of popping out against two impossibly lame lead characters. So the suits learned the wrong lesson and made Sparrow the name and face instead of crafting solid lead foils for Depp's supporting shtick. Completely agree. I think that's definitely one of the problems. But guys, let's talk more about Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales in the spoiler section. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to 
work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, so we're in spoilers for uh, for Pirates now. Uh, you know, a few other things I wanted to mention, actually. should have mentioned this in non-spoilers, but I thought the score was actually not very good. Uh, the Pirates movies, for all of their terribleness, have consistently given us interesting music. And unfortunately, uh, they did not have Hans Zimmer back for this one. Uh, they had another dude who uh, is, is, I'm sure, a very talented composer, but uh, Jeff Zanelli, very talented composer, but just basically retreaded a lot of uh, the work that Klaus Bedell and Hans Zimmer did in previous movies. Uh, and it reminded me of like Don Davis's score in Jurassic Park 3. Like nothing new was added, just kind of a retread of older stuff. Yeah. He does add some new themes, but none of them are particularly memorable. This is not a score that I'm going to be returning to again and again. You go to YouTube and look at, you know, you know how a lot of like music tracks are on YouTube. Like if you search for a song, it'll be on YouTube. Uh, look at those pirates tracks. Like many of them have millions of plays. Um, it, it is a very memorable series when it comes to music. And I unfortunately don't think this movie really hit those heights. Uh, I will say on the positive side, I thought that, uh, Salazar's design was pretty interesting visually. You oh know, my like God. the idea of him being uh, underwater, right? Like unbelievable. The hair uh, kind of being underwater all the time. Right, yeah. right. Amazing. I mean, with uh, Barbosa in in the first Pirates movie, that was already really impressive. Where these guys are decomposing in the moonlight, right? Right. Pretty cool. But it, they took it up to the next level in this. So I thought they did a pretty good job in that respect. Yeah. Uh, Nothing else about Salazar is good, though, uh, in terms of his motivations. I mean... Yeah, he makes no sense, he, like really. he, So, firstly, he's, he's killing all the pirates, but for some reason, now that he's dead, he's, he wants to eat all the, um, all the, you know, all the non-pirate ships as well. Um, and him getting... His whole, him and his whole crew getting cursed, right? Like, they didn't explain why that happened or, or what that's right. all about. They went into that cavey bit where the curses hang out. Yeah, and then they need. Not to supposed get, to go in there. Uh, and the compass is the thing that you know. So, firstly, uh, Chaim Gartenberg wrote this article for The Verge that I thought was really good. A headline is "Dead Men Tell No Tales Proves Continuity Still Doesn't Matter for the Pirates of the Caribbean Films." Do you guys read this? I sent this to you. Yeah, yeah um, I did. Uh, basically, what what Mr. Gartenberg does in this mo- in this uh, article is he tries to make sense of the Pirates franchise and, and tries to like take it seriously as a piece of storytelling and completely fails uh, because the plot just makes no sense. Because it's impossible to take it seriously so, as a piece of storytelling. So he writes here, quote, Somehow Salazar determines that Jack's magical compass can free him and his crew, but since a flashback shows that Jack receives the compass from his dying captain only minutes before damning Salazar and his crew, it's not clear why their curse would focus on that. Jack's compass is an iconic part of the franchise. It famously doesn't point north, but rather to the thing the holder wants most. And as Dead Men Tell, Tell No Tales informs us, if you betray the compass, it releases your great fear. The problem is, in Dead Man's Chest, we're told that Jack receives the compass from Dia, Tia Dalma, the human form of the sea goddess Calypso. And the entire plot of Dead Men Tell No Tales emerges from Jack betraying the compass by trading it for booze. But by my count... 
Jack has given away or lost his compass over the course of the series at least five times without activating any curses. In Dead Man's Chest, he gives it to Elizabeth so she can find Davy Jones' heart and save Will. He loses the compass to Lord Cutler Beckett in At World's End when he's captured by the East India Trading Company. He gets it back, then gives it to Will before stranding him in the ocean. Beckett gets it from Will and gives it back to Jack later in the same film. Uh, and so on and so forth, talking about how he gets the compass and gives it away and, you know, uh, on Stranger Ties. But I feel bad how many times this guy had to watch the Pirates movies in order to write this article. Right. But <laughs> point being, the compass stuff makes no it's, – it's incredibly poorly explained and it makes no sense in the film, right? That the idea that him giving it away would release um, right. Salazar and his men, why is that happening? Uh, it doesn't – it's not really very clearly explained. And the idea that, by the way, the Trident – is, is the ne plus ultra of MacGuffins, right? It can solve everyone's problems. Barbosa's right. problems, Salazar's problems, Jack Sparrow's problems. As long as they get the Trident, uh, they'll be fine. It doesn't explain why they'll be fine, right? But they're going to be fine once they get the Trident, right? Yeah. Uh, so that, that answers all the questions, I guess. It, done and done. I, I, I thought it was very, very lazy from a storytelling perspective. Yeah. Uh, Brad, is there anything you have to say about the the story and how this played out? No, it was it's it's extremely frustrating. I half the stuff about the compass I didn't even remember until I had read this article. I was like, oh yeah, that's that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The only logic that I could, that I thought that might make it somewhat more forgivable as to why this never was a problem before is that maybe when Jack gave the compass to other people previously, he always intended to get it back. But maybe in this movie, he reached such a low point that he's like, you know, screw this. I don't need it. And gives it away for something inconsequential as, you know, a drink. Yeah. Whereas, you, you have just put more thought into the compass than the creators <laughs> of this film did. Yeah. Right. So that, that's the only thing I can think of is to explain it away. But even so the, the trident is the most egregious, MacGuffin to ever be introduced in the Pirates franchise. It's like, oh yeah, you uh, break it and it just gets rid of all of the curses on the ocean whatsoever. And the biggest problem with having this as a MacGuffin, having it be such a powerful key thing, is when the credit scene comes into play. There's a stinger after the credits. Yeah, right? it raises a myriad of questions because. So let's describe what that is first for those so, who did not stay through the credits. Like what happens after the credits? So after the credits, we're in uh, Will and Elizabeth's house. Will, uh, Will is now back uh, at home on land because the curse of the Dutchman has been broken. He is back in human form. He doesn't have barnacles on his face. Him and Elizabeth have embraced and they're now sleeping together in their bed. Uh, there's a, a thunderstorm outside. You hear some shuffling outside of their bedroom. And uh, you see a sh- the shadow of Davy Jones over their bed, the tentacles moving around his head, and you see his lobster claw lift into frame as there's a big thunderclap. And suddenly Will wakes up, he looks around, Davy Jones isn't there, but the camera pans down and there's barnacles and wetness showing that Davy Jones really was there. Apparently somehow, not only back from the dead, from having his A, heart stabbed, and B, <laughs> fallen into a maelstrom of a storm in At World's End, but also, he's now back in his monstrous form, despite the fact that all curses have supposedly <laughs> been lifted from the world now. So I have no idea how that works, what comes into play. Uh, it just it makes no sense to me. It was it was maddening. Yeah, yeah. I, they just completely. Uh, I, I mean, 
It's the, really a stinger for stinger's sake. It's really like, look at this thing that you would recognize. Right. Like That's uh, all it is. I, I think just having the trident break all curses is just a very problematic thing. Because given all the shit that this series has shoveled upon us over the last decades worth of movies, you know, there's curses left and right everywhere that, that have all these implications. And if they just undo all that, it's just going to cause a lot of problems. And it feels like the movie didn't really think through the implications of that. So... Hugely disappointing. But guys, here's what I'm going to say. I mean, we spent a lot of time trashing this movie, but this movie did earn a ton of goodwill uh, in the opening action scene, right? Where, sure, I don't think it really makes sense that Jack Sparrow would seduce this guy's wife and say, hey, let's, let's sleep together inside this vault on top of this gold. Right. Um, but there is a scene that plays out like fast five, you know, with the bank right. vault heist, except instead of dragging a, instead of a bunch of vehicles dragging a vault, which by the way is physically impossible. Uh, it's, you know, 20 to 30 horses dragging an entire building behind them, which I think is even less possible, but it looked great. I mean, it looked like they did it practically. Uh, it's, it's creatively executed. I, I it earned yeah. a lot of goodwill. Uh, in that sequence that it then proceeded to squander over the subsequent two hours. Well, but over and over, I, I, I found those cartoon gags to be so well done. Uh, Brad brought up the guillotine sequence. That is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, mounting that camera underneath Johnny Depp's chin and having that guillotine almost get to him and then use some <laughs> triple force to not get to him. It is so fun and so clever, and I've never seen anybody do that before. And then and, – and the sequence doesn't end there, right? He finally gets off and he's still strapped to that board and he's kind of having a fight strapped to that board. I mean there's so many great ideas in all those gags. I was having a blast watching that. And then, you know, Undead Sharks later, that was really fun. I mean we've seen undead things all, a lot. But the way the undead sharks were visualized and, and just the concept of that was so cool. That over and over and over again, the movie is just like – I mean – Splitting the ocean in two and fighting down the trench and having the the, the underwater people kind of trapped behind the, the wall of water. The, the uh, anchor sequence at the very end where they're being pulled out of that. All of that stuff is just so fun and, and novel and interesting. Yeah, uh, a lot of it looks visually interesting. And, and I think you're right that there is – despite how bad this movie is, there is – some visual inventiveness like so, some people sat in a room and said what if we dangled you know jeffrey rush's character off of this anchor off the side of the boat that's been parted because of poseidon's trident you know like right. someone sat in a room and came up with that idea and they executed it and brought it to the big screen you know there, there is something worth uh, admiring in that but guys the idea that karina is barbosa's daughter so stupid i mean agreed it, it's just cringeworthy. Like, you don't need that at all. And when did he father this show? Like, it would be one thing if they had laid better track for this in previous movies. Then I would actually uh, admire a move like that. But it, it just felt like a way to give, to inject emotional stakes into this situation that has almost no emotional stakes. Right. Um, a very clumsy, clunky, uh, ineffective way of doing so. Brad, what do you and think I of the Barbosa relationship? No, I, I absolutely agree, especially because – so if, if I remember correctly, uh, Karina's motivation for paying attention to this journal and trying to get the trident of Poseidon herself is she just wants to complete her father's work. Is that, is that right? 
I, that was my impression, yeah. So, so like, we are to assume that Barbosa went to the island with all the stones and, like, chipped, chipped the thing one off. off and then, like, and he <laughs> sat knew... around making a, a really nice leather cover for this book. Well, uh, but, then, but then, like, he, but, like, he knew that chipping it off would, like, if you put the stone back on, it would activate this thing. It's, yeah, like, my question, just... yeah, I, what, for what purpose did he do that and <laughs> then leave, leave it to his orphan daughter for, yeah, why for, didn't he just get the trident the first time he was at that island? Just, yeah. All the stones were there. It's kind of like you know uh, how like Indiana Jones goes underground and there's like hugely elaborate traps that lead to the thing. It's like who was really setting all this shit up? You know? Um, yeah. Same question here is except except way worse because it feels completely like nonsense. The Barbosa connection. Well, any of these things, it's like who who constructed this <laughs> riddle that takes you across the world? You know, in any of the Uncharted games or any any of these kind of uh, Indiana Jones esque things, where it's like, why would the guy be like, you know what, I'm going to be dead, but this this riddle is going to live on. It's going to be so <laughs> it's sweet, be so sweet. <laughs> it's going to stump so many people. Uh, and then the trident itself was, shall we say, pretty lame when it comes lame. to the, the design. Of it looks like it looked like a Rita Repulsa's staff, but yeah. just like just just like it had been covered but, in. But like, from the TV show. Of yeah, Power Rangers, you know, and then and but and the solution, by the way, is break the trident. That is <laughs> that is the massive revelation they come to. Oh, that was yeah, that was one of the most frustrating things to me is that it took them like an extra beat to figure out what the audience already knew. It's like divide the trident. It's like yeah, break it. What are you doing? <laughs> Um, not exactly uh, a super challenging thing that requires a, an astrophysics degree or whatever it is Karina has in this movie. So, anyway. I have, I have one other Please. thing that, that occurred to me that might not be – it might be a little controversial to say. But – Uh-oh. Um, it occurred to me while watching this that uh, the character of Karina I, – I am – a feminist. I'm I'm pro uh, representation. I want strong female characters in these films. But it's it's interesting to me that the solution that many screenwriters come to is to create a completely modern character plugged into non-modern times. Mm. Right. This is she's like pro science. She's you know all these things that are anachronistic and. It's fine, right? That's the kind of role model I would want in a big Hollywood film for a young girl to look up to. That's great and cool. But it makes me all the more um, in awe of the the thing that George R. R. Martin managed to do with Game of Thrones where he, he created very strong female characters without denying any of the realities that that kind of a world would impose on that gender. Hmm. You know what I mean? He created these awful, awful situations that, that these female characters find themselves in that are completely consistent with the patriarchy of the time and how repressive and, and horrific the treatment of women were. And yet they transcend that by their own cunning and wit, but not by being built of, standards that aren't consistent with the time, right? They're not, they're not these modern women that we have grown into, which I'm glad we have. And I'm glad, you know, women are 
in STEM, you know, and all that stuff. But at the time, that would not have been allowed, right? That would not have that would not have flown, and it just just seems weird, right? Instead of sort of creating this false character, George R. R. Martin finds ways to bring. And, and again, it's a fantasy world that didn't exist, right? Westeros is not real. But it feels more authentic because it doesn't deny the actual awful situation that, that women of the time were in. Now, Pirates is doing a different thing. I'm not expecting it to do that. But it just occurred to me that so often you see these very modern female characters in non-modern times. But George R. R. Martin figured out a way to not do that. I don't know if I entirely agree with you, Jeff, on this. I mean, I, I, I kind of understand what you're saying. Um, I, I think the idea that this woman believes in science and astro- uh, astronomy, to the extent that she does in this movie, is probably what you're reacting to. But Well, it's kind of her, her whole thing is she's like she's Hermione Granger, right? She's, um, she's Lisa Simpson, Right. Right. It's a very, very common archetype that I think is great. It's a great role model for for girls. And and it's a great role model for me. Right. I'm inspired by Lisa Simpson. I'm inspired by Hermione Granger. But they are very modern characters. It's a very modern view of women. I'm glad we've gotten to that place. I'm glad that women are able to do that. But you you take a you look at the the Stark sisters in, in relationship to that, they are, they are of their time of that world. And yet they figure out ways to be powerful and self-actualize within that constraint. Yeah. I mean, I, think, I, I don't know. I, I just I actually, I'm on, yeah, I'm on David's side. Actually. I, I think that that's exactly what happens with this character in Pyrus, uh, because, she is constrained by the world she lives in. Like, I mean, she's being sentenced to hanging because the people think she's a witch. Uh, so she's she's just going against the grain. And I think every generation, no matter how far back, has had, you know, people who stand against whatever adversity there is at the time. And I think she's just one of those people. They're, they're not necessarily as uh, forthcoming with, like, how much, I guess, maybe of an outcast she could be or – with how hard the patriarchy comes down on her. But I think that she's just like any of the characters in Game of Thrones in that yeah. she does her own thing, even though there's a society around her that tells her she can't. That, that being said, I, I really do think like it's the science. Like if she didn't believe in the science thing, I think you would feel differently about, about it. Because I think we now know that astronomy is, is cor- like <laughs> of legitimate science. Um, but back then we didn't, and I think that's kind of what you're reacting to. And I think if well, you if you explain was, to me any other feature of her character, I don't know. <laughs> right, that is that is defi- that is the only defining characteristic. She's uh, plucky, you know. She's <laughs> uh, she stands up against. She wants to topple the patriarchy, you know. She's she's resourceful. No, no, but that's what I'm saying is like, yeah, the, the science element. But I think other than that, other than that, like from a personality perspective, I think it's very similar to any of the women in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I don't um, believe. I, I don't think that she's necessarily a very richly drawn character or anything like that. Yeah, but I think yeah, that yeah. I think specifically with regards to how she's portrayed as a as a woman, even despite you know existing at a time when women were not allowed to do those kinds of things, I think it's it, it, it works for what it is. What do you guys think of uh, these two young leads, by the way, Brenton Thwaites and um, the uh, woman who played uh, <clears throat> the woman who played uh, Karina? Hi, uh, 
Kaya Scodelario. 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 Yeah. What did you guys like? Do you guys think that they are worthy inheritors to the Kira Knightley Orlando Bloom throne? Sure. Why not? <laughs> I I think I like Kaya Scodelario more than I like Brenton Thwaites. Brenton Thwaites to me feel um, he's not bad, but he just he feels like you know any fill in you know young character. I actually would have preferred that. Uh, but people, no one will remember this, but Sam Cleveland was in uh, On Stranger Tides, um, who is who was in The Hunger Games. He played Finnick O'Dare. And I thought he would have been better to have Brenton Thwaites' role in this movie as opposed to the throwaway role he had in On Stranger Tides. Right, right. Um, but, I, I, yeah. I don't even remember that character, unfortunately, but I believe you, Brad. I yeah. Believe you. yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I don't dislike Brenton Thwaites, but to me, he's like Theo James, where he's just kind of there. He's a handsome face. What Like, there's no discernible unique quality about him that makes me interested in him doing a movie um but i i, I do i i like kaya scotelario in this role i think she's a, she's a pretty good actress but uh i mean the role doesn't necessarily do her any favors as far as far as really showing her talents or anything like that well i think we all remember brenton thwaites from his star making performance in gods of egypt right i mean jeff that was one of your favorite movies of, of the year it was one of the movies i was forced to watch of the year yes yeah yeah uh, uh, and he 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 thwaites it up here, and he's thwaiting it there. Um, no, he's he's fine. He's fine. There's nothing wrong with Brendan. I think he does better in this movie than he does in Gods of Egypt. To be honest, well, but, he has he has slightly more to work with. That's for sure. <laughs> slightly more to work with. Let's not forget uh, the, the exciting sci-fi movie, The Giver. Mm, mm. <laughs> I have not seen that one. I have not seen that one. All right. Uh, uh, what were we going to yeah, say, don't Jeff? Worry about it. I was say we can't do a spoiler section without talking about the big Kira Knightley, Orlando Bloom cameos. Yeah. I thought that was uh, – I mean that's how you end this series. There should be no more sequels. That, that We have come to the conclusion of the story, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean it sounds like they're going to make a bunch more sequels, but you know. Well, if yeah. this thing doesn't do very well, maybe they won't. But – I, I mean, I think, I think this one. I mean, I don't remember the other movies well, but this feels like wrapping up all of the loose ends of a series, doesn't it? Yeah. Other than that very last stinger shot, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, stingers yeah, if, are. Yeah. If they didn't have the credit scene, then it would. Yeah, it would be a perfect way to wrap up the franchise. Yeah. I thought it was cool that she showed up at the end. I was, it was, I was. It was nice. It was nice that they both showed up. And actually, to be honest with you. I really like the opening of this movie where uh, Orlando Bloom character's son comes up and says, like, I'm going to come save you. I'm going to come save you. And yeah. and they play the music from At World's End, and it's like a beautiful theme that Hans Zimmer wrote. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm actually, like, I'm actually in. I'm in right now. I'm into this yeah. movie. And, uh, and then, you know, then that opening action scene. So I'm like, wow, I'm having a great time now. And then, you know, this really very silly plot that just goes Well, on I don't think Barbosa needed to be in this movie whatsoever. Agreed. There, there, you lose like 45 minutes right there, just <laughs> cutting him out completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the movie just needed to be leaner. It just didn't need to have so many moving parts. I feel like it's like, well, we, we have Jeffrey Rush available. <laughs> Let's put him. I mean, he's a part of the franchise. Yeah. You can't do a movie without him. He's. I mean, I love his pirate character. Also, another Gods of Egypt alumnus, by the way. But yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah. he's cashing the paychecks. Um, <laughs> but, I did. If, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Kira Knightley doesn't have any lines in this movie, does she? Oh, 
Like she just stands there. Yeah, and they she gives him a hug. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. Like there's they no. Kiss. Yeah, I think she has to. I think they have to pay her more if she says something. I, that's that's kind of what I figured. <laughs> it was just. Oh, weird I'm sure there was nothing to be said. <laughs> I'm sure she got a chunk of change for showing up one day. Right. Right. Like. My guess is between a hundred thousand dollars and like a million dollars for showing up. For <laughs> that's one a pretty day wide for... swath, David. I mean, did you? But did you? Think I think that's it's right? closer like... to the closer to the higher one than the lower one. I don't yeah. think it was a million, but I think it was. Uh, Maybe I think it's like it was... half a million. You got half a million or two hundred fifty thousand dollars for just showing up for one day shoot. Right? It's, uh, yeah, she, I'm sure she got a, a nice a nice chunk for. Uh... I want to do that job. Just show yeah. up for one day, do a cameo where you oh. don't speak. Work on your Kira Knightley impression. Yeah, I'm working on it, Jeff. Every day. Every day in the mirror. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of our review of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussed next week. Find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast.gmail.com. Our theme song is from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper is from uh, filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. In the meantime, Brad Ullman, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? You can find me over at SlashFilm.com, where I'm the weekend editor and staff writer. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And if you like movie podcasts, which it seems like you do, uh, I have a podcast that I co-host called Go Flix Yourself, where we talk about movies, crack wise, play movie games. Um, and that's on iTunes and SoundCloud if you want to check it out. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Well, I have several other shows for you to check out. You can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. I do a daily video game show talking about the news of the day and what games I'm playing. It's called Newest, Latest, Best. You can find it at anchor.fm slash NLB. I also have a weekly long-form video game show with guests called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns, just 20 minutes. Those are at wehaveconcerns.com. Find all of my stuff at davechen.net. Follow me on Twitter at davechensky. That's davechensky. Next week, we'll be reviewing Wonder Woman. Looking forward to talking about that with you guys. Wonder Woman is the movie next week. Uh, and thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, the after show where we talk about a variety of random topics that didn't make it into the regular podcast. Uh, I'm David Chen. I'm here with Brad and Jeff. Uh, and you're and, not listening to this anyway, so yeah, it doesn't matter. The after show that where we, you know, just it's just a bunch of random stuff that no one gives a crap about. So you know, what have you? Uh, but uh, we got a bunch of emails about Alien Covenant that I, th- I wanted to go over. So, you know, let's just say that before we, we get into uh, this After Dark, we're going to spoil uh, Alien Covenant. So if you haven't seen Alien Covenant and you want spoilers for that movie, uh, then please tune out. This email comes in from Vaishal Shankar from Berkeley, California, who writes in the slash from Casagema.com. Uh, I'm a PhD student working on AI and machine learning at UC Berkeley, and I just want to chime in about Devendra's comment about Google's scary neural networks building more neural networks. 
as a researcher whose day job it is to train the very same algorithms that Google uses to do very stupid things with great difficulty, and often even doing those stupid things requires terabytes of data and tons of computational power. For example, in order to build an algorithm to differentiate between cats and dogs, one would need to feed it literally hundreds of thousands of pictures of cats and hundreds of thousands of pictures of dogs and run an algorithm on one of the world's most powerful computers for over a week. I'm so glad he had the word pictures in there. I thought he was going to say feed it thousands of dogs. <laughs> Whereas a human, child, a human child can learn the difference after maybe two or three examples. Anyway, the point is, I assure you, we aren't anywhere close to the AI apocalypse. Unfortunately, Google and by extension Silicon Valley tend to overhype the prevalence and success of quote-unquote AI. We've made great advancements in the last decades in what we can do with AI, but most of these come from, from better hardware, specifically NVIDIA GPUs, to run the same dumb algorithms we had 30 years ago. And all, most, all those algorithms do is sophisticated pattern recognition as opposed to scary quote-unquote intelligence. He's using a lot of like, quotes here throughout the email, and I feel weird reading them all. So just know that basically every other word in this email has like quotes on it. Um, <laughs> so things we can do very well are things like image recognition or speech recognition, where we have large labeled data sets of images and labels of what's in the image or speech audio and a human transcription of the speech. But we researchers are as lost as you guys about how to build Skynet. TLDR, worrying about the AI apocalypse is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. Quote credited to Andrew N. That email comes in from Vaishal Shankar from Berkeley, California. Go ahead, Jeff. I'm glad to hear that. But... How do we know this isn't an AI writing an email to us? <laughs> to trick question. us. Yeah. That's the first thing they would do is, is compose emails and just assure everyone that there are no problems. Uh, I agree. I agree completely. Uh, but, you know, I guess we're just going to have to take – we're going to have to roll the dice on that one, Jeff, and just assume that it's, it's legit. This email comes in from Joel. Uh, Joel writes in from Melbourne, Australia – Wanted to quickly say thank you to Sir Kanata for voicing something that has been plaguing me since Prometheus, yet no one seems to be bothered about. Alien, the original, is so amazing because it is alien. As an audience, we're thrown into something that is not from this earth at all, with insane biomechanic technology, acid blood, bizarre birth and life cycles, etc. It was the greatest on-screen presentation of what an alien could actually be, until Ridley messed it all up, managing to shrink the whole universe down to be all about humans. Because, you know, everything revolves around us. Uh, so, so disappointing. Even the engineer's home planet was woefully uninspired. To think we could have had this. And then uh, what uh, J- uh, Joel does in this email is he pastes all these images from like uh, like Hodorowsky's Dune and Geiger designs. Like some of the Geiger designs originally for Hodorowsky's Dune and for Alien were like so crazy and out there. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the engineer homeworld in Alien Covenant felt pretty... Um, I, I, I mean, we could barely see it. You know what I mean? It was so dark. Right. And I felt like we couldn't really uh, see what was going on. So, Well, um, I'm just glad that I got knighted in Australia. I'm really pleased by yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, here's the thing. Going back to Alien Covenant, like, I think the thing that really messes up the continuity is in Prometheus. Like, in Alien Covenant, you, you basically find out, and it, as I, I already said, we're doing spoilers, that the... Uh, aliens, right? The xenomorphs come from David the AI's creation. Like da- David the AI right. created the xenomorphs, right? Through a bunch of experimentation and testing on humans right. and so on. But what doesn't make sense is that in Prometheus, which is theoretically way before the events of Alien Covenant, uh, there is a mural in the cave 
that shows a xenomorph on the, like a xenomorph like thing on the wall. Right. That just makes no sense. Like when you when you evaluate well, but it in the context of Alien. Did he Covenant. not? He didn't create them from scratch. He just maybe he like perfected them. Right. That's like, I think the idea is that he took this creature that was an alien. Right. That was already and, like in the pipeline of. Yeah, he things. just weaponized it yeah. and made it changed it around to do certain things that w- turned it into a weapon. You know, it's well, pretty weaponized to begin with. I'm just going to put that out there, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, yeah, Brad. But, yeah, no, even even so, as we saw, though, that, that mural of that xenomorph looks just like the final form of the xenomorph yeah. that, that we see David perfect. So that that's what doesn't make sense whatsoever. Like, if it was an image of maybe the neomorph that right. was, you know, that looked slightly different, that would be one thing. But it looks like the xenomorph that we're all familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So... Actually, well, I, I am. We, I am we just both... posted. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. You... Uh, we slash film. We just posted um, the, a video earlier this morning from Red Letter Media, where it's them just asking all of the questions that are now posed because of Alien Covenant, which basically creates all sorts of problems with the continuity of what happens with the xenomorphs and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it's they they ask a lot of really. Interesting questions that basically make me dislike the movie even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the problem is that those questions aren't interesting. I mean the, the idea that they have these big plot holes is possibly interesting. But nothing about where the xenomorphs came from as expressed <laughs> yeah. in these two movies is interesting to me. Right, I, exactly. I don't know. I mean I, I understand Joel's email and want, like wanting to not make it all about humans, but I thought that the I thought the central idea that we created the xenomorph somehow is somewhat interesting. Um, but is I, it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's more interesting to think, which is what the first Alien movie posited, that we, the human beings, are venturing outside of our planet and – there is some really scary stuff out there potentially, right? The idea that there is this big mysterious world and we're going headlong into it thinking we're going to be the top of the food chain still is not the case. Speaking of which, Jeff, have you seen – This American Life did an episode this week about Fermi Paradox. You should check that out. No, I got to check that out. I love that. that. Um, All right, guys. Let me just tell you – before we wrap up here, let me tell you about this. So, firstly, let me just say thank you for the emails to slashfilmcast.gmail.com. We read them. We appreciate them. Um, and I really enjoyed our Alien Covenant review and also enjoyed a lot of the conversation via email that came after that. Guys, I, I want to tell you, I had a really L.A. trip when I went to Los Angeles to shoot Stephen Tobolowsky uh, doing a story this weekend. So, firstly, Stephen picks me up from the airport, and we go have dinner near his house. And we're sitting down, and... Andy Garcia is at the table next to us. We, we, we spent like probably five, ten minutes debating whether or not it was actually Andy Garcia. And then Stephen says, I've worked with Andy Garcia in movies before. I, I can recognize him. Let me just well, go check it out. And then so. Yeah, I was just going to say, why don't you just go and say, hey, what's up? Well, oh. so he goes, uh, so he gets up to go to, Stephen gets up to go to the bathroom and then walks back to us, sits down, and he's like, no question, it is Andy Garcia. Well, we didn't um, say hi. Well, the reason he didn't say hi is because uh, Andy Garcia was with someone. You know, if Andy Garcia was by himself, maybe, but like he was with someone, we didn't want to interrupt. You know, it just would have been. Was it Julia Roberts? Was he with Julia Roberts? I'm not going to say who he was with. 
But um, suffice George to say, Clooney, George Clooney interrupting and trying mm, to win her back. Mm, I like that. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, he he was with someone, so we couldn't interrupt. So that was one thing that happened. Okay, so already it would be awesome. Funny if he was with someone way famouser, and you guys are just hooked, just stuck on the Andy Garcia thing. Well, firstly, <laughs> firstly what was awesome? What was awesome was uh, like everyone in the restaurant is like looking at Andy Garcia, right? Because they're like trying to they're, a trying to figure out if it is Andy Garcia, and b if it is Andy Garcia, they just want to like look at him because they don't get to see him in a non-film situation <laughs> and then what was hilarious what was hilarious is when steven got up to go to the bathroom to like check out andy garcia i saw andy garcia looking at steven to be like who do i know where do i know that guy from? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of like mutual recognition going on there so so that was awesome and then the next day uh it's a couple hours before the shoot I go uh, – I'm having uh, a meeting uh, friend of the show, Dan Trachtenberg, for, for lunch. And uh, I get to the cafe that we're meeting at a little bit early. And I'm wearing a T-shirt of uh, – a, a Get Out T-shirt, like the Jordan Peele movie Get Out. And uh, so I, I go try to find a seat. And you know, there's a wall of booths that's open. So I go over to the wall of booths and – uh, I'm about to sit down, and there's one guy sitting in a booth near me. And he's dressed in a blue blazer and a nice shirt, and he has a laptop on. And I go to sit down, and he's like, oh, hey, did you work on Get Out? Because uh, I'm wearing a Get Out t-shirt. He thought I might have worked on the on the production. And I said, no, no, I didn't work on Get Out. And he's like, oh, man, Get Out was such a good movie. And then proceeds to tell me about his two horror scripts that he's written over the course of the next 10 minutes. Uh, and just talking about these, 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 that's called being in Los Angeles, David. (laughs) I mean, I'll just say the script sounded pretty rough. I'm going to put that out there. They were pretty rough. Uh, and then just like, it it was just incredibly uncomfortable. Like I, I I did not want to be a part of this conversation. You know, like I did not ask to be a part of this conversation. And he just kept going on and on about his scripts to a complete stranger. It felt so tragic to me like that this uh, imagine like, somebody that actually is a known quantity that must happen to them exponentially more often yeah but i guess uh, w- w- you know the the idea that like this guy has no one to tell to no one to talk to except this random guy who who has nothing in common with it. it's not even like i did work on get out you know like it, it, <laughs> I, I, he has no idea who the hell i am and he had no one to talk to about his scripts except me. Uh, it just it just made me profoundly sad. Um, but Jeff, you, you've probably had experience with this kind of thing, right? Yeah, no, L.A. is uh, the land of profoundly sad. That's that's <laughs> what we do best here. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, do you, it do is... you have do you have an encounter like that with a stranger that you can recall? Um, because I a think friend even, was just you... telling me a story. Uh, I, I hope he's he's cool with me repeating it because I think he listens to the show. Um, he was telling me a story about being out with some legitimately legit m- models. Like he was, he went out to dinner and they were actual like beauty pageant contestants that he was hanging out with. And the waiter came by and said, um, uh, you know, what, what do you, what are you a producer for or something like that? And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, Oh, I just, I, I just assumed you were a producer. And he's like, no, I'm not. And the left and the, and he turned to the models. And he's like, why, why did that guy think I was a producer? And they said, because you're hanging out with us. <laughs> 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 and we are so much more attractive than you. 
Um, so yeah. Uh, it, I mean, that's, that's Los Angeles, right? Is people just, uh, I, I have a headshot in my trunk. I have a, a script in my, on my passenger seat. Anytime you, anybody that might need it, I got it. That's, that's LA for you. Any, yeah. anybody pumping your gas or serving you coffee anywhere has got a, a screenplay they'd love you to, for you to read. Well, what was hilarious was uh, you guys have both seen Get Out, obviously. Brad, have you seen Get Out? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to spoil one aspect of Get Out. So if you don't want to listen to the spoiler for Get Out, tune out now. By the way, we, we've dropped – this is very bad, Jeff. We've dropped two spoilers for Get Out on two separate episodes of the Slash Filmcast in the last few weeks. Yeah, um, I feel you, bad. You dropped one, and then uh, Huay Tran, uh, we dropped one by accident as well during our Colossal episode. Uh, yeah. And we got a bunch of complaints about that. I, I think – yeah, when when you have a movie like Get Out, you know you really want to talk about it, uh, and yeah, uh, and it feels like everyone's talking about it, so you feel like you can just take liberties. But in general, we on the Slash Filmcast are pretty good about that. So rather than spoil it a third time, <laughs> I am saying tune out if you don't want you know to spoilers and Get Out. But so I'm talking to this guy, this guy about the his scripts, and he says to me, "Hey, um, Get Out, like that movie is pretty good, but you know one one thing that really disappointed me." Like, um, you know that guy at the beginning that gets attacked and stuffed in a trunk? Is that the same guy that shows up later at the party? Wait, wait, was this Jeff Wells? No, it was not Jeff Wells. It was like a young guy. He looked like he was in his 20s. He's like, was that the guy that shows up later at the party? Because in the script, it is the same guy. And I said, <laughs> wow. yes, yes, it's the same guy. It's definitely the same guy. It's like, it's like I mean, they make a, he's like a make, famous actor. He's not like an unknown it, person. It well, is not, a key plot point. Yeah. <laughs> well, they make it very explicit. No, no one pussyfoots around that. There's it's a major very, subplot about yeah. finding that guy. You know? Right. And, and lo- shooking at pictures of that guy. It's the, and they're like, oh, that's the same guy that disappeared years ago. And, and he's like, because in the script, it is the same guy. But in the movie, I don't think it's the same guy because I couldn't – maybe he was the same guy. I just couldn't see it because it was so dark in the opening scene. And I just uh, – like I thought not only is this incredibly sad that you're starting a conversation with me over my T-shirt of Get Out. But <laughs> – uh, but also you don't even grasp some of the basic fundamental plot elements of Get Out. It just it just multiplied the sadness for me. Yeah. So sorry about that. <laughs> I, on, on behalf of my city, I apologize. It's Don't awesome. ever come here, anyone, expecting <laughs> to not not feel sadness. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's where dreams come to die, everybody. 